Beyond the Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I meet up with a former student of mine, Ben Mislevich. He and I discuss what to expect if you're a new teacher and how to build the best learning culture. Ben is starting a new job himself as a teacher in a classical school and is full of questions about how best to tackle his responsibilities. We recorded our Q&A session at Kane Academy in Falls Church, Virginia. This is part two of a two-part interview. So how many years into teaching do you think you settled into a specific teaching style? Or was there a point where you felt that you'd figured it out, you'd figured out how you were going to teach? Yeah, I, I think that I settled into some things well early on, and then um, I was sort of a natural for some things. I, I started my work right out of college as a journalist, which meant I was asking people questions all the time. I was interviewing people all the time. So when it came time to, to lead seminars, there was a natural move into that work to ask questions, to, to ask people to look at something and say, you know, what do you say about that? Uh, I think also I was taught really well by a high school speech teacher how to organize my thoughts. When I had to teach writing, it was it came pretty pretty uh, well for me to, to coach uh, young people on how to write. I had a, the same teacher was my drama teacher. I didn't act during college, but in my first year of teaching, my headmaster asked me to teach drama. And I picked it up, and um, I taught drama on and off uh, right up to the last year uh, before I retired. So I, I kind of took to that pretty well, and I was a better director, I think, than I was an actor. Uh, and uh, maybe it's because I learned how to organize my thought, and I just felt comfortable leading people. I'd say, um, surprisingly, uh, although I didn't take a lot of math as a high school and college student, I was a really good algebra teacher. And I think it had to do with uh, empathy. I, I, um, I just felt the difficulty that the students felt. And I worked really hard at being clear and energetic and on fire for algebra. And so surprisingly, that worked out pretty well. I'd say an area where I didn't do all that well at the, at the outset and then got pretty good at it was history. And I think what happened there is I didn't know how to translate the study of history to the classroom for secondary students. I actually majored in history. I loved history. I still love history. And I had great professors. But they lectured. And we rarely had discussions. Uh, and I don't. that's not a criticism. That's just a, a fact of the pedagogy they employed. But in secondary school, I don't think that works all that well. Because I think what happens is that that fosters an attitude that says, Mr. Zorman's going to tell us what to think. Then he's going to test us and that we're going to tell him back what we learned from him. Whereas I think the, the better learning for younger students is to engage the, the stuff that historians engage. So I learned to give them historical documents to work over and to, to ask questions of and to um, infer from them what was going on that would be important for the political community in which that was happening. I taught them to look at maps and to uh, draw uh, insight and conclusions from the maps about how the civilization or the culture of that particular polity or that, or that broad uh, civilization to actually developed. So it, it may seem so obvious, 
but it actually matters. You have all those mountains running, you know, uh, near the coast and down the middle of Greece. It really matters that the English Channel is pretty narrow and separates England and France by a fairly short trip. It mattered in in uh, 1066 uh, with the, with uh, the invasion, the Norman invasion of England. It mattered during the Hundred Years' War uh, when Henry and others came over to France, and it mattered. Uh, for about eight centuries that England and France were knocking heads. Uh, and so when the students, say, say you show students a clip of um, Master and Commander, you know, with Russell Crowe, and then they go, oh, yeah, that's right, France, France and England were, were fighting well into the 1800s. And it was only towards, you know, later in the 1800s that they reached Entente, and they said, you know, we're not going to fight anymore. But it's interesting that eight, eight centuries of being in close proximity made uh, warring pretty easy. And then it made it really easy for the Allies to launch the greatest you know, land invasion in history, and that is on D-Day. So we, we all converged in, in England, and then we, then we crossed over to uh, Normandy. So just working up maps of that and then related historical narratives makes the study of history so much more interesting, and it sticks with them. And it enables them to tell the story themselves rather than, than spitting back the story that the teacher is telling. And I think that really helps. So over the years, I, I learned how to do that better. I got, I got to be a better history teacher. I think uh, early on, too, um, I heard a, an English professor at Notre Dame once say that he always kept a yellow pad by his side because he, he garnered insights from the students when we, they had discussions on great books. So from the very first day I ever led seminars, I did that. I, I haven't regretted that one bit. I've learned something in every discussion I've had with my students. Um, that also goes to ongoing learning. Part of, part of learning is you have to have your ears open. You have to be humble that even students 30, 40 years younger than myself can teach me something because they're human beings too. They're, they're entering into the experiences that are captured in compact form in a novel or a story or a piece of philosophical writing. And um, those insights are genuine, and uh, they're, they're little nuggets that I, that I put on my yellow pad and tuck away from my own insights. Speaking of students, I was wondering, how much does a certain class change how one teaches? Do you have a specific, a specific example of a class of students where you thought before the semester of the class would go one way, but then you had to really adapt your approach because of the specific group of students that you ended up having? That's a great question, and, and this is how I would answer it. There's no two classes are exactly the same. You design curricula to be a general approach. When do you adapt? When do you change, right? Well, it has to be a conversation with the head of school, with your mentors, whoever's in charge of curriculum. But look, uh, one lesson that Socrates and Jesus uh, give us as great teachers is you have to teach the students in front of you. Students are not automatons. They're not just the latest numbers that come through for you. And then it's not like a you know a computer program, you know, or an, or an application on your on your phone where you plug in and out out pops a result. You know, data in, you know, results out. It's not like that. Students are contingent critters, like all of us are, right? And they have um, various levels of, of understanding. They have free wills. They have personalities, etc. So you have to teach the students in front of you early on. I remember teaching um, a course of studies. It was mostly uh, Greek and early Christian literature. And the students I had, were, it was all boys, and they were, they were pretty good readers and pretty good discussions, discussions, but they were terrible writers. 
somehow or another they got into the 11th grade and nobody had taught them how to write. So I just realized this, that this was a group that I was going to have to spend a lot of time on uh, teaching them to write, which I did. And, and other things had to be sacrificed, discussion times. Uh, I think I even cut, with permission, I cut a book off the, the reading list that mm-hmm. year. Why? Because in balance, those particular students needed this particular skill. They were just really deficient in it. I would say also it's important to note that I didn't grade them all down because they couldn't write. What I did is I, I thought about them as I would a basketball team. I said, they don't know how to play. I want to get them to the point where they can play. And if they all are playing at the end of the season, they all get letters. So I, I took my failing writers and I got them to proficiency, and I forgot about the failures the first part of the year. I just let it go. I said, it wasn't important. What was important is they got to the point where they could write. That's countercultural. Some people say absolutely outrageous. It's not inflating grades, but it is uh, considering where a student ends up as opposed to where a student starts. And there have been championship teams that started out way down the line and ended up being the Cinderella team in March Madness or something like that. And you go, well, you take away their championship because on average they weren't as good as the team that was expected mm-hmm. to win? No. It's like when you show up and you, and you demonstrate proficiency, you ought to be acknowledged for it. So I kind of like... I, I wish we didn't have to give grades. We do have to give grades because it's the currency out there. Mm-hmm. I wish we, we treated grades in evaluating students and adapting to what students' needs are a lot like the way we, we treat athletes on teams. We give letters for, for players who play X amount, and we acknowledge that they all contributed and, and worked as hard as they could to get to certain proficiencies. And we don't regret that they didn't win every game. Uh, I mean, we do on one level, but we, it's not like we, we mark them down we say, Man, they did their best. They were really playing the game. They were in the fray. Even in the losses, they were in the fray. Whereas sometimes with teachers, like, you know, you, you give them the, the lower grade, it averages out and ended up, you know, kind of a diminished um, evaluation. I'm, I'm more inclined to say, get to proficiency, climb to the top of the mountain, and the, the grades be darned. That's wonderful. What are helpful and unhelpful ways of evaluating whether or not you're doing a good job teaching? Uh, I would say, um, first of all, that assessment should be, uh, should be under a light that's formed by lots of conversation with veteran teachers. So um, I, would, I would encourage all new teachers to be really humble and to talk it out with the head of school, with the, with the veteran teachers, uh, and let that conversation be a, a wonderfully helpful light to you. So I think that um, I would also come back to the principle I think is absolutely pay dirt, and that is remember that you are the leader of the culture. So evaluation is how a student responds to the culture you've established in the classroom. Evaluation shouldn't be on some kind of extraneous set of so-called objective standards that the the student does or does not meet. So you have to understand it's your team. It's your team going up the mountain. So you you got to evaluate how they're responding to your leadership. And that puts the onus on you to be a really good leader. So students, you know, we're, I remember, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there was this kind of loosey-goose thought in the, in the 60s where you just let a kid study at his whatever pace and whatever content, you know, and it ends up a lot of kids don't learn very much doing that. So you, so you have to have a plan. You have to have some structure. You have to have um, a vision for where we're going. Uh, so 
so how do you know if the students are responding to what you're doing? Well, just like a mountain guide's observing the mountain, uh, the, your students should be climbing. You know, they should be actually doing the stuff of learning. They should be doing their homework, performing in class, whatever that is, maybe problem solving or working in groups on problem sets, or it might be in a class discussion, could be at the board. You know, can they actually parse a sentence, uh, see if you're teaching them grammar? Um, are they writing uh, paragraphs that, that are insightful? They're, they're built around, you know, a really good sentence. Are the sentences well-structured? Are they clear, you know? Are, are the students learning how to, to self-edit? You know, that's one of the things you do as a writing instructor, even with little ones, even with seventh and eighth graders, you're teaching how to write incrementally better sentences. And um, oftentimes it's a matter of just coaching half a dozen tricks to identify where, you know, flab or fat exists in its end. You cut it out or how to make, um, you know, best use of a comma or when not to use it, et cetera. So small tricks of the trade will help them make uh, better sentences. So are you seeing that kind of progress? If you were coaching a basketball team and you had seventh graders, are, are they, uh, you know, I don't know if you if they still do, but are you are they milking the cow when they do a pass? Um, are they are they jumping off the right foot when they do a layup? You know, it's as simple as that. And sometimes it's as simple as that in the classroom. You have certain skills that the students should be adopting and executing day in and day out. And you're coaching them. Say, oh, good job there. Mm, Got to do a little bit better job there. I'd say another thing is, um, are you are they responding well to your coaching? So. You know, if you had to report to the mom or dad and say, you know, little Billy uh, is in my class, he's there every day, but, you know, I tell him to do X and he does anti-X, you know, or, you know, I've given him three ways to improve his paragraphs and here are four paragraphs in a row where he hasn't implemented any of the improvements. I've met with him, you know, et cetera. So, you don't, unfortunately, you don't want to be there, but but that that is a fact of life sometimes. The kid's not responding. So you want to be able to say he's responding. And then you, if he's not responding, our job as teachers is to find out why he isn't responding. It might be a call home. It might be a person-to-person meeting with the student. It might be a talk with the dean of boys or girls, depending on uh, what the student is, who the student is. And then you find out if you can troubleshoot that. Is there another way to get that kid, you know, off the dime? Um, so those are those are some tips that I would I would implement, and I, I definitely think too that um, you know you have to ask yourself those good foundational questions. Do I have a plan? Is the plan clear to the students? Do they know where we're going in the course? Do they know what they're supposed to do when they leave the classroom and go home and work on their own? You know all those things. Ask yourself those critical questions to make sure that you're doing everything you can to, to move those students down the line. And when, you, when you've given them the very best culture you possibly can, then ask yourself, how are they responding to it? I think that's the best way to evaluate a student. What is one thing that people often say is easy about teaching, which is actually more difficult than people realize? Well, I think that this has largely to do with something I said earlier in the interview, and that is sometimes teachers think that teaching is just a matter of transmitting information and knowledge to the students, where it's actually getting them to engage the reality, the sphere of reality that we're looking at. So you can you can talk until the students' ears fall off about how to climb that mountain, but you've got a model for them. 
you got to show them the way. You got to you got to guide them up the mountain, and you got to coach them as they're going. And uh, so, um, what should there be in the classroom? There there should be uh, clear goals and objectives that they can reach, and means to reach them. Uh, There should be energy in the classroom, passion, uh, love of learning that's um, infectious. And where does it come from? It comes from the teacher. Mm -hmm. And then it comes from the rising tide that lifts all boats because there's a core group of students who are kind of on fire with whatever Mr. Mislevich is doing. And, And then that becomes a dynamism. It's just... It's just so powerful, and we everybody wants to be there. All the kids just want to be there because it's it's so interesting. And Mr. Mislevich and the other students are so engaged, and it's just so fun to be around them. And uh, they can't help it. Remember, there's a natural desire to know. There's a natural affinity to know in every one of your students. So tap it. Tend to it. Cultivate it. Nurture it. Protect it. Foster it. And uh, that's that's the tide that lifts all boats. That that's the thing that's going to take care of all the little concerns about homework and whether or not so and so's got a shirt tucked in or paying attention in class or all the other little you know rubrics and protocols that we have in a, in a school. Those things fall into place if the student is loving what he's doing, if he's engaged with the thing that you're pointing to. So a great teacher leads the student out and he opens up the world for the student. And if the student is looking, if he's marching forward, he's climbing the mountain, he's engaged with the, the plants that he's you know, stumbling onto as he walks, man, that's golden. And that's pay dirt. And it, it may be very nonlinear. So, you know, if you're coaching 12 people to go up a mountain, it's not going to be a straight line. They're not all going to go up the same way. And so, you know, you're like the leader of a three-ring circus. You've got all these things, all these different acts going. Uh, but it's wonderful. It's like coaching a team of 12 players, too, right? No, no two players play the game exactly alike, but there's a, a symphonic or a, a, an orchestral concert going on here where everybody's working together, but, the, but no two players are exactly alike. And that's, the, that's part of the fun of being a teacher is that you're working with a variety of human beings, but they share a passion, they share an objective, they share a love, and uh, that's what you're trying to do. So that that would be uh, that's not easy. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's hard to do, but it's you know that's that's what it's all about. So this partially doubles back on a previous question, but also I thought of it when you're describing the dynamism or the passion that can happen in a classroom. I can think of my own experiences where maybe I think sometimes it would be a, pretty, a specific text that you know my classmates got really into with me or a set of days. But how? How realistic is it to have that the entire semester? Or in your experience, like how to have the, should you the, shoot for a moment every once in a while where there's that passionate antagonism or you think you really can shoot to have it over, you know, majority of a semester if you really are on top of your game and the students are involved or or is it something that's just gonna pop up every once in a while and you need to capitalize on those moments kind of Well, I think as human beings there's going to be a variety of rich moments, and some of them will be those aha moments, you know, epiphanies, where we all go, man, I never understood that until now, or wow, look at that. Wasn't that a great discussion? Kids will come away and say, Mr. Mislevich, I didn't think I was going to love this novel when we went into this last two weeks, and i got to tell you, this is my favorite thing we've read all year long. You know, will you have that every time? No, because you can only have one favorite. <laughs> yeah, right? And so you won't have those aha moments all the time. Some students will just be nuts about polynomials, you know, and they'll just want to factor till the cows come home. And, you know, someone will be looking for something else. And they'll have a 
They want to move on. You know, I have done polynomials. What, what else you got to throw at me, right? Uh, but, but, you know, work is, uh, is hard. Uh, study is, and the demands of the, the curriculum that you're going to teach um, uh, translate to rigor, you know, and rigor, difficulty, hardness. You know, these are kind of dreaded words to the student. Oh, I'm going to have to work really hard. You say rigor, they go, oh, this sounds really bad. But you know what? That's another part of our nature, is that we, we actually like challenges. It's one of the reasons sports are so popular, is that we actually like to exert ourselves and to run as fast as we can and to, to lift the next 10 pounds on, on, on the barbell or to, or to jump a little higher. You know, we do all those exercises with our calves and our, our thighs and our, 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 our other muscles in order to jump just a little bit higher, you know? When a guy finally gets to the point where he can dunk the ball or, or um, he's equally proficient with each hand and dribbling, you know, that's a great moment, right? We love to exert ourselves. So we should be confident that there's something like that going on in studies we don't want to dumb down to students. That's, you know, that is really, I'm, I'm glad you've pressed me to say that because I think that's one of the things that happens in school to school to school is that I think, I suspect that most American schools are dumbing down to students. They're not expecting them to be able to work hard. They don't expect them to have a passion for these traditional areas of study. We, we don't expect them to attain true moral, spiritual, intellectual freedom. We're just making them jump through the hoop because we expect these are little monkeys are going to have to go into the workforce someday and work for some bureaucracy in the government or they'll get some job. And, and so it's all utility. Whereas a true education recognizes that we are human beings. We are uh, spiritual critters, intellectual critters, artistic critters. We're creative. And that learning and creativity and the collegiality that comes in learning together this is part and parcel of, of living out our lives the way we should. And, and that means we can expect a lot of our students. In the realm of sports, you know, the, the American women just won the, 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 uh, the World Cup. Women's soccer was almost non-existent when I was a kid. And so just, you know, a few decades later, we rule the world in, in the so-called world sport, right? Right, right? Well, how did that happen? It's because we expected a lot from young athletes. And we created all these clinics, these traveling teams, competitions, uh, recruitment, scouting, skills, uh, physical training, beyond our wildest imaginations from when I was a kid. And so now we expect a lot from, from athletes. Well, we can expect a lot from students, too. And the thing is, though, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, newfangled. The, like, this has been going on since Socrates and Christ, at least, right? So we, we know what it means to, to drive people, to coach them, to lead them, to expect a lot from them. And um, to run the race, as St. Paul says, well, that's hard work, but it's worth it, right? It's what it means to be a human being. So we should have a lot of confidence in that and not dumb down to the kids. Expect them not to be able to climb into your culture and embrace it. They can climb that mountain, but they do need you to guide them. So conversely, what is one thing that people think is really difficult about teaching, which is actually easier than people realize? Let, let me turn the question around. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. so, so cause I, I'm, I think I've already covered kind of the mismatch expectation, but the, I think that a lot of teachers go in thinking that leading discussions uh, is really easy, and I think it's a lot harder than they realize. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the step that's most often missed 
is the step that has to do with asking good questions. Uh, I've been in hundreds of classrooms where the teachers kind of walk in and they ask a flabby question. And it could be about just about any subject that uh, you can imagine. And I think actually, actually crafting good questions is, is exactly the, the heart of the matter of teaching. So the teacher is looking at, at something in uh, the physical or spiritual or aesthetic worlds, and he wants his students to, to look there too. But, but a lot has to do with, um, you know, how do I do that, Mr. Mislevich? How do I look the way, how do I look at, at algebra or history or literature the way you are? That's a good question. So your answer could be didactic. You could, you could model it for them. But I think because, as Aristotle says, we all have a natural desire uh, to know. We all have a, a natural ability to wonder, um, elicit that wonder. Stir up that desire to know. How? Point the way by asking a question. What do you see here? Why does this character do what he does at this particular point in the story? When you look at this polynomial, you know, we've, we've done some simple algebraic uh, expressions. And given what you know already, look at this. You know, and you know something about factoring. So how would you factor? This looks more complicated. How would you factor this? What, what skills can you bring to the polynomial uh, uh, which you haven't seen before, and, and now try to try to factor it. Or given what we learned, if you've introduced factoring, now that I've introduced it, here's a complicated polynomial. Take 10 minutes with your team and see what you can do with it. So ask them a good question, give them a good exercise, a good project to work on, and uh, elicit from them that natural stuff that's so important to being a student. And I think that the crafting of good questions is a skill that too few teachers pay attention to and give time to. Well, this has been wonderful. Do you have a parting thought or a piece of advice for a new teacher? I'm not sure I have any advice. Um, I might say something uh, of encouragement right, to you and to any new teachers. I think it's a great thing that you've responded to the calling to teach. And, you know, I've tried to invoke a couple of our, or maybe I, I would say arguably our greatest two teachers. So there's something kind of epic. Uh, there's something of cosmic importance to, to teaching. And we should never forget that, that the responsibility that we have for our neighbors uh, inheres in many expressions, but one expression we find it in is in the responsibility to, to lead people to knowledge, to understanding, to, to vision. When we train our students well, what we're giving them is freedom. We're, we're teaching them to, th to be independent thinkers, not in the sense that they're independent from the human community or independent from history or independent from reality. No, 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 just the opposite, that we want them fully engaged and, and recognizing that they're part of the community of the dead, the living, the future. Um, we're people of hope. We look forward to, to the future together, right? But rather, um, when they've completed their education, it's not that they have every answer for what the world uh, for what you know is suffering in the world or the problems that, that burden us, but rather they have a frame of reference which enables them to engage the world, to engage their neighbors, uh, to, to seek their well-being, to seek you know good solutions for practical problems that burden us like architectural challenges or diseases that continue to confront us. 
Also, you know, how do we mediate between warring parties? How do we keep families together? How do we defend the defenseless? All these things are made more possible by an education that uh, prepares our students uh, from the great sources that we all rely on. Uh, so, and they're not static sources; they're wellsprings. They feed us. And you're, um, as a teacher, you, you respond to a calling, and you're a keeper of the wellspring. It's like you're keeping it; the water's clean and open and available, so that the next generation can drink of them and turn around and and, and do great things for for our neighbors. So, anyway, I, co- I commend you. I encourage you. Um, I, I hope it's a great year, and uh, I hope that people will see in your teaching. Uh, something that's beautiful and powerful and effective and in turn will encourage other people to take it up. So way to go, Ben. Good luck to you and God, God speed to you. Anything we can do to help you, we're looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks yeah. so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon. So please keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Keene Academy, thanks for listening to Sources.